are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're moving quite along, uh, along quite well at this point. We are coming towards the end of the text with step number 26. And we are currently reading on discernment. And we're on page 196, number 42, halfway down the page. And... Uh, as we've been discussing, discernment is one of the fruits of humility, that once we have removed the impediments of our passions and certainly of our pride, that we are able uh, to see things with the kind of clarity as well as the things of God. And, uh, uh, and so John begins to lay out for us what, what discernment shows us. Uh, certainly the vices that we struggle with allows us to see them with a kind of clarity. Uh, also, our intentions uh, for doing things, whether they be good or bad. Uh, sometimes the mixing of vices and virtues within us that we uh, can find ourselves engaged in both at the same time. Uh, he'll also be speaking of why sometimes our prayers go unanswered or why the demons leave us uh, at various times in the spiritual battle in order to make us more vulnerable, uh, the differences between natural and supernatural virtue, and also discernment helps us to see with greater clarity where we are in the spiritual life uh, and where there still needs to be great progress. And so again, we are picking up with number 42, St. John writes, much sleep is born sometimes of luxury and sometimes of fasting when those who fast are proud of it, and sometimes of despondency and sometimes from nature. So of luxury, uh, overeating, eating foods that are rich or heavy can make a person sluggish in their prayer and sleepy when we are weighted down and our body is digesting or working on digesting something uh, very heavy, it can make us sleepy. Sometimes when fasting and those who fast who are proud. So uh, if we take great pride in the fact that we have are able to fast or, or we've extended the fast beyond a 24-hour period, uh, this can lead us then to fall asleep, humble us, that we can't even keep our eyes open for prayer or the moment that we step into prayer, we, we fall asleep. Uh, 
sometimes, he tells us, uh, because of despondency, kind of spiritual sadness that can afflict us, uh, almost a kind of spiritual depression. And so it would mimic a kind of emotional depression in that regard that uh, sometimes we will drift off and find ourselves very tired and sleepy as a way of sort of escaping the realities of the spiritual life and the struggles that uh, it brings with us, the crosses that we are called to bear. Uh, sometimes we can struggle with our faith in the midst of those things or, or because of repeated falls, we can fall into a kind of sadness that then leads to a kind of spiritual depression. Uh, also, and finally, uh, sometimes from nature. So uh, when we become over-fatigued, say if we've uh, embraced certain ascetical practices in an extreme, uh, the body will become weakened and too, too weak. And uh, because of that, we will struggle with sleep. Number 43. Talkativeness is born sometimes of gluttony, and sometimes a vainglory. So uh, gluttony, uh, when we do not watch our appetite for food uh, and we are not humbling the mind and the body, we can become chatty because we become focused upon uh, trivialities or we simply lose our, our watchfulness and, and so give ourselves over uh, to speech when we should be protecting uh, the silence or solitude that we've created in order to have uh, a more prayerful state of mind. Adam, did you have a question? Paragraph 43, how should one admonish a brother uh, given to talkiveness? Uh, well, certainly it would be one's superior uh, that would be responsible for that. You know, so in particular, if there is a kind of grand silence or within the role silence kept during one's work, uh, I, I think one of the ways we would do it is simply not participate in it. And if it's inappropriate conversation to simply walk away from it, to remove ourselves from the circumstances. Uh, I think always best if it's done privately uh, sort, of, uh, sort of what scripture tells us when it talks about fraternal correction, that the desire there is not to humiliate the other or to shame the other. And if one finds another too chatty and too talkative, or if they're talking during periods of silence, one might, you know, pull them aside and talk to them at some point. And uh, within religious communities, there are often those who are dedicated uh, uh, to that particular service to the community, they're correctors, you know, that they are those who are to sort of help others when they fall away from the role. Uh, but with friends or families, you know, I think we want to be pretty careful about that in order that charity does not break down. Always better to err on the side of charity than anything. Uh, sometimes he says it's from vainglory we fall into this talkativeness. And so we become uh, sort of uh, captivated by ourselves and something that we've accomplished and want to share that or talk about that with, with others. And so self-focus, it can make us talkative. Whereas if we are focused upon God or focused upon the other, 
we aren't typically going to be inclined to talk about the self, especially if, if humility has been something that has been formed within the heart. Number 44, despondency is born sometimes of luxury and sometimes of the lack of fear of God. Despondency is one of the difficult uh, vices to struggle with, and precisely because uh, there isn't something that we can point to in particular to aid us in the struggle or pull us out of it, uh, that often it is endurance within the spiritual discipline uh, to keep one's focus upon God and simply through prayer or the Jesus prayer until we come out the other side. Uh, and not giving ourselves over to the sadness. In other, in other words, not nursing it or nurturing it, uh, where we begin to spiral downwards. And uh, it's often a danger for those in particular who live a life of solitude, uh, both to struggle with it, uh, but also if one falls into it, it's very difficult because you don't have another there to aid you, to, to lift you up or to encourage you in the spiritual life. And so it often is the plight of the anchorite, uh, of the hermit, uh, to struggle with this particular one. Uh, but it also can be uh, lack of the fear of, of God. And so not uh, remembering death or mortality, uh, not uh, being watchful of our heart, and so being negligent, uh, lax in our spiritual discipline, and so not being driven to pursue the things that are enduring, realizing that we are going to have to give an account for how we have lived our lives, but also for how we have uh, made use of the grace of God within our life, whether or not we've taken it for granted or buried it in the ground rather than using it in the way that God desires. Suzanne. Okay. I'm still <laughs> learning how to use this phone. Um, I just read a book by, I think, I think it was Father Gabriel Bunge, is it? Bunge, yep. Mm -hmm. On despondency. It was amazing because he explained it in a way that I've never seen it before where there's like a frustration in the desire, like the concupiscible, St. Thomas would call it the concupiscible. Mm -hmm. And then there's an anger, which would be the irascible. So when you look at it, it's like the totality of your passions are completely disordered. Mm -hmm. And this is what creates this acedia. Uh, it was, I just recommend that book. It was, it was it was a great way of looking at something from another angle. Right. Gabriel Bunch is a great spiritual writer and has written a number of things on the life of prayer. And yeah, I think how that he describes it is, is very good. You know, this irascible fa faculty, uh, we've talked about it uh, often describing it as the insensitive faculty or the insensitive power that it can be directed inwards too, and uh, uh, kind of a, a deep frustration uh, with the self or with uh, the spiritual life as a whole or spiritual disciplines 
so misdirected, you know, often the way that we will misdirect it is towards others and their weaknesses and flaws. Uh, but it can also be directed towards the, you know, the, the spiritual life as a whole. You know, we become angry or frustrated at, at having to give up the things that we we desire. And so that's, you know, a hermit who, for example, who lives in great solitude and uh, isn't being fed or nourished by any distraction or the talk of others and often having a very bland diet and, uh, not much there that is offering worldly consolation can fall into this kind of sadness and start thinking about leaving the life all altogether. The grass always looks greener on the other side. And so certainly, uh, you know, all of a sudden the active life and ministry is going to seem very attractive, especially when one begins to fall into this. Yes, Gabriel Bunge, B-U-N-G-E, that's right. Number 45, blasphemy is properly the offspring of pride, but it is often born of condemnation of our neighbor for the same thing, or of the excessive en envy of the demons. So, when we would judge others because of the, their weaknesses, their flaws, that often we will then be confronted or fall into uh, one of the things that would be most humiliating or uh, shame-filled for us, you know, to have thoughts during prayer even that are blasphemous, that uh, thoughts, you know, against Mary or Jesus or inappropriate thoughts altogether that there can be this profound humbling that comes because of that pride uh, or the condemnation, as he says here, of our neighbor or the excessive envy of the demon. So as one progresses in the spiritual life, uh, I don't know if it was in the Evrakitinos or another part here in John, that the demons will stand nearby. It's really not arising from within, but the demons whispering their blasphemies uh, in such a way that uh, it rings as if it is within our own minds and hearts, but it's more uh, what they are subtly putting before us. And it's a terrible struggle. Uh, those who have had the experience of it uh, uh, often find it uh, leading to a kind of despair uh, because it often will rise during times of prayer. Suzanne, did you have another question or is this... Was your hand up from before? Now, is there a way to turn your hand off? Yes, but I'm not sure on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to figure it out. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay, that's all right. Number 46. Hardness of heart sometimes comes from overeating, often from insensitivity and attachment. And again, attachment comes from sometimes, sometimes from lust or from avarice or from gluttony and from vainglory and from many other causes. So hardness of heart or insensitivity to things that are spiritual, that uh, we can lose that desire or lose that uh, attraction to the things that lead us to God. And, uh, and part of it comes from satisfying ourselves with the things of, of this world, that we begin to lose that desire for the higher 
things and a hardness of heart begins to develop. And, uh, and so he says, even from many other causes. And uh, I think as many ways as we can find to cling to our attachment to the things of this world or to ourselves and uh, our own points of view that uh, we can find this kind of hardness of heart beginning to develop within us. Guile is born of conceit and anger. So guile, a kind of cunning uh, in one's thought and action in regards to, to others. And this you know, willingness to distort uh, the truth or reality in order to manipulate and control others uh, or the circumstances, or again, I think to uh, try to uh, achieve the emotional uh, higher position uh, over another. You know, it's again, trying to uh, place ourselves above others in a certain way. So conceit would drive it, that, you know, we are filled with uh, self-importance. And so believe we deserve to be treated in a certain way and we will do whatever we can in order to have that be so, or anger if we feel that we've been, you know, haven't been respected or admired enough, then uh, guile will lead us uh, to seek to diminish people in the eyes of others. Pretty common thing in our own day. Uh, Barbara says, this translation says malice in place of gal, uh, right. And the two would be tied together because it's a, a kind of malicious envy uh, of the other that can drive a person to act in this in this fashion. And if we remember back in the Evergatinos where they were talking about stability in one's life and uh, the fathers are all saying that, you know, one does not easily uproot oneself. Uh, from where one lives that it's best to stay and wage that battle where one has been rooted, except if there is this kind of malicious envy that exists uh, in regards to things spiritual, that where it becomes then something that can be destructive to one's pursuit of the spiritual life and the life of holiness, then one might make the decision to say, all right, I can no longer remain in this setting and move to another. And so malice uh, is a big part of this, this, you know, willing uh, kind of destructive attitude towards the other. Number 48, hypocrisy comes from self-satisfaction and willfulness. And so, you know, we've often heard hypocrisy as being an actor wearing a mask. And one of the masks that we can wear is, you know, religiosity or a kind of se severity, uh, sternness, you know, all these things uh, that seem to suggest seriousness uh, in the spiritual life or the spiritual battle, uh, but really can be a cover. Uh, for the fact that a person is willful and prideful or that in some ways uh, they are self-satisfied in a hidden way, you know, that they are 
not really living a disciplined life of prayer, or they are not living a life where they've ordered their appetites, especially for food. Uh, the secret eaters who get get up in the middle of the night and run to the you know refrigerator in the refectory without you know anybody seeing them but during meals they're abstemious and and don't eat very much and so there's a kind of hypocrisy there of wanting to be seen as disciplined and uh, severe in their spiritual practices but in reality they aren't number 49 all the contrary virtues are born of parents contrary to these but without enlarging on the subject, for I should not have time if I were to inquire into them all one by one, I will merely say that for all the passions mentioned above, the remedy is humility. Those who have obtained that virtue have overcome all. So again, we, we come back to the all-important virtue for us, that even if we are in large measure weak in many of the areas of the spiritual life and find ourselves falling into certain vices, that humility uh, contains all the virtues within them because it is a kind of truthful living that then leads us immediately to repent, to turn toward God, to seek his forgiveness, his grace. And so it draws us immediately back into that relationship with God. And so if a person were to fall every single day, but repent, uh, then, you know, this is an evidence of humility and it undermines all of the vices that have been uh, described here. It becomes the, the remedy for them all uh, because the spiritual life is not just about you know, are uh, building up a kind of strength, you know, in our exercise of the faith, asceticism, and all the practices associated with it are all meant to lead us deeper into that relationship to God and to cling to him and his grace. This is the source of our salvation, but also of our sanctification and growth in the life of virtue. And so one can be struggling with a whole host of vices, but if one has virtue, uh, I'm sorry, if one has humility, one has all the other virtues because it draws one back into the life of Christ, who is the source of virtue for us. And his strength becomes our strength and his virtue becomes our virtue at that point. Uh, Whereas one might have all the other virtues, but if we have pride, uh, all, all of those virtues come to naught, and they don't bear the fruit that we imagine. So it tells us, again, a great deal about the importance of this virtue that we've been talking about for months now, that it is the mother of, of all virtues. Uh, Antony writes, I believe this humility is a reason the Sunday after publican and Pharisee is fast free, so as not to be proud in fasting. Uh, interesting thought uh, that uh, because, you know, with this past weekend of the publican and the Pharisee, 
you know, we're allowed to overhear what's going on in the heart of two men. You know, the secrets of their hearts, Christ allows us to uh, to see and to hear uh, as we are about to take up the Lenten discipline. And so uh, I can see what you're saying there, that we don't immediately jump into the fasting uh, before uh, looking at, at the gospel that we are going to this weekend. Okay, number 50. The mother of all vices is pleasure and guile. He who has them within him will not see the Lord. And abstinence from the first will bring but little benefit without abstinence from the second. And so pleasure and guile, uh, one might say, you know, the satisfaction of all the appetites and then pride or vainglory. And, uh, and he goes on to warn that if, even if we do abstain from this satisfaction of our desire for worldly things, whether it be food or material goods, if we are still driven by guile, by this malice or malicious kind of pride, then the abstinence is going to do us no good, that it will be undermined by the pride in, in the end. So you can see why all of this is placed under the title of discernment, that uh, what humility begins to allow us to perceive is the the very nature of the things that we are struggling with a greater clarity as well as provocations when they come to us and the uh, temptations that the demons put before us that we are able to see them coming with a greater clarity and so begin with a kind of fierceness can strike them strike them down and uh, and then also develop the habit uh, of doing that uh, to the, the point that we, you know, gain this kind of pure, deep purity of heart where uh, we are constantly doing that and don't even have to think about it. it become, the habit of virtue becomes the norm and the habit of engaging in that spiritual battle. Number 51. As an example of the fear of the Lord, let us take the fear that we feel in the presence of rulers and wild beasts. And as an example of desire for God, to let carnal love serve as a model for you. There's nothing against taking examples of the virtues from what is contrary. So it's an interesting thought because he's saying, all right, how do we understand these things in relationship to God, fear of God or love of God. And so we look to what is familiar to us and our fear of wild beasts would teach us to flee those occasions where we could be attacked or destroyed. Uh, and so we flee the things that are contrary to God with this kind of fear, knowing how destructive they can be, that they can steal the very life from us that God desires. Uh, and desire for God 
he says, we can look to the example that we have in, in carnal love as a model, as something that points us to what should exist within the human heart, that there should be a desire, the sense of lack or incompleteness that we have outside of being in relationship to the other. And this is an important thing that, you know, it's often been confused in the spiritual life, that this asceticism is seeking to free us from our love from anything within the world, or that it is to become a stoic, you know, not to care about anything. And we have to be very careful about that, because uh, if we enter into that and embrace that as our worldview, then we uh, eliminate what draws us toward God, which is desire. We are desiring beings as human beings. And God has created us for himself. And the only thing that satisfies that desire is God and his love. And so in some sense, we want to give free reign to that desire for, with which we've been created. And just to have it rightly directed and to see even within our earthly desires, including our desire for another, uh, as rooted in this greater desire that we have as human, human beings, that all of our desires point us to the greatest desire with which we've been created. And uh, this keeps us and helps us uh, to avoid developing a kind of negative anthropology as Christians, that we really have this high view of what it is to be a human being, that we are created uh, to love and to love in this extraordinary way and not just at the height of natural virtue, but to love in a godly fashion, that we've been uh, given this capacity uh, by grace and in and through Christ to love with his love. And uh, it also alters the way that we see virtue. Uh, like the, vir vir the, uh, the, the word chastity, often carries with it in our day and age a negative connotation, you know, or it's just saying no, or, you know, not engaging in, you know, physical relations with another, rather than it being uh, uh, a loving and a desire that's free of, of self-will, and that does not objectify the other. And so chastity is something that gives us a greater capacity to love. And so forming and fostering that virtue within our life early on, not only gives us the greater freedom and capacity to love God and to live a life of virtue, but would gives us the capacity to love spouse, our spouse uh, in with the greatest freedom and uh, the greatest respect and dignity that we can give them. And uh, it's not as though uh, married couples naturally become chaste, you know, because now they, you know, in the context of marriage can have sexual relations. A person could still not have a chaste heart, can objectify the other, 
can be lustful and uh, and have that lead them even to greater sins, to sin against the relationship of marriage itself. So we often don't talk about these things in a very fruitful way. And uh, I think sort of holding on to these images and the, this understanding of the spiritual life is, is important. Suzanne, is your hand still up from before, or do you have a, a question or a thought? No, I, ha I have a question about discernment. Okay. It's, it's two parts, really short. I can make it short. The first part is, can the devil put a dilemma in your mind, and so that sets you on this road of discernment, so you're, you're discerning, like you cannot identify where the dilemma came from, from God, from the devil, or from you. That's part one. Part two is, in this process of trying to figure out what God's will is, can God be silent for a very long time and just kind of make you, put you on ice and just force you to kind of like just read and do research and wait for him? That's my question. Uh, in terms of the demons putting in us, something no they can put before us provoke uh with thought image idea and we either respond to that or we don't and when we respond to it sometimes we will linger with it and engage it and nurture it and then we add uh image images to it and then it becomes fantasy and develops within us. And so uh, it, it is very difficult that uh, it's because it's not only those things that are obviously sinful that are put before us, but things that can take a hold of us and our pride on a deeper level uh, to pursue things that really aren't from God, but that have the appearance of being good. And so we can be just as willful in our religious pursuits or the pursuit of uh, good things or good deeds, uh, but it can be something that is driven by ego and self-esteem or because it's going to pull us away from the path of sanctification that God desires for us. And so uh, the demons can hold, you know, especially for someone who's, developed in the spiritual life and is leading a virtuous life, uh, the, the kind, these kind of temptations can become more and more subtle. And so waiting, actually, and silence uh, is often the remedy. Uh, I don't know if I probably wouldn't say it. it's God putting us on ice, <laughs> because it sort of sounds like, you know, God is, you know, just sort of ignoring us for a period of time but uh god can if he does not respond to our prayers or what we request immediately we must not think that our prayers are unanswered or that god does not love us or that he's not being responsive by putting on us on a ice uh in the sense in, in that sense, but wanting us to wait and listen, perhaps on a deeper level, in order that we might set out on a path that does lead to our either our sanctification or salvation uh, as a whole. 
that silence uh, is has often been said to to be what cures just about everything within the spiritual life because it allows us to listen to to God and the word that he speaks to the human heart and we've talked about this so many times within the the group so I won't belabor it but silence is the language of the kingdom uh the language of eternity Saint Isaac tells us and it allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself and so when there is something often important or challenging or difficult to discern it is often best if we do remain in silence and not think that that silence is God pulling away it can actually be God drawing closer to us in order to communicate communicate something to us of greater greater import and uh and so we should come and to love silence and solitude and and foster it in our life for that reason. Because I think so often within the spiritual life, including with discernment, we are trying to make use of our, our human judgment and reason. Not that those don't come into play, but we are trying to figure out things for ourselves. What seems right or seems like God would want and uh, you could see how this could be something that would trip us up, you know, that we are acting in what seems to be in conformity with what seems good or true in our mind. Well, maybe what God is calling us to do on the surface to us might seem absurd or involve a cross that we would shrink back from and want no part of. And if we are not listening, and if we are not engaged in that silence, we are not going to hear that word, nor the consolation and the grace that comes through it. And so can choose our own will and our own path, contrary to what God would, would desire for us. So I hope that answers both of those, you know, that the demons don't put it in us so much as put it before us and then uh, God putting us on ice as it were I think is more allowing us to go to where we need to go in the spiritual life which is silence and in our day and age silence is often a very difficult and painful thing for most people uh uh, there, I came across a little article about, I don't know if it was at Carnegie Mellon or somewhere else, where they built one of these rooms that removes all the kind of, what do they call that noise, just that is typical within uh, a room or around us. And uh, people, when put in that room, can't stand to be in it for more than a, a few minutes. Uh, because you could hear everything, including the blood pulsing through your your veins uh but it doesn't it certainly doesn't need to be that extreme for us that we are used to distractions and often more uncomfortable with 
uh, seeing what is going on with our own thoughts, what is going on in our own hearts or what we are feeling. And so people often put on the television first thing in the morning because it creates this kind of white noise for them or allows them to be slightly distracted so they could just get moving in, in the day because the day ahead seems so dreadful. And, or same thing, can't go to sleep at night without having this ambient noise. Uh, and, uh, and so as a Christian, you know, we have to foster in our life this kind of love for solitude and silence because we know what it offers us. Okay, let's see, where did we leave off? Uh, number 52. The present generation is seriously corrupt and all full of pride and hypocrisy. And bodily labors, it perhaps reaches the level of our ancient fathers, but it is not graced with their gifts, though I think nature never had such need of spiritual gifts as now, and we have received our due. For God is manifested not in labors, but in simplicity and humility. And if the power of the Lord is made perfect in weakness, the Lord will certainly not reject a humble worker. So curious uh, saying, and a lot that is packed into this, that it's funny that John would say, it almost seems absurd to us, and you wonder what he would say about our generation, that he's already saying in his time that, you know, our age has become corrupt and full of hypocrisy. And he says, you know, there might still exist this discipline among the monks that equals that of the, the first monks, but lacking that humility, uh, not reach the, the, the gifts and the sanctification that they experienced. And so John says, uh, for this reason, we have to make sure that we are walking that path of simplicity and humility that we acknowledge our weakness before God. And in this, God lifts us up, not because of our spiritual labors or disciplines, but because we acknowledge our poverty and we acknowledge it freely before him. And so we can't cover up the, the, the mediocrity, the laxity, the negligence of our generation uh, but our path out of it is simplicity and humility, you know, to acknowledge it before God and beg for his, his help and his grace. Louise writes, in a psychology experiment, participants had to do nothing for 15 minutes. However, they could prick themselves to create pain if they wanted. One third of the women pricked themselves versus two thirds of the men. These people preferred physical pain to the pain induced by silence. <laughs> that, oh, I'd love to read that study. If you can find uh, a link to it or send me a PDF, I'd love to read it. But that is not surprising. Uh, in, in the same way that, you know, 
most people would prefer death over public speaking because of the vulnerability of it. I'd rather die than have to get up in front of a, a crowd and give a talk. But this is interesting, you know, that silence can be so painful that one would want to, to experience pain uh, and, and preference to it. Uh, that, you know, silence can often uh, put people in touch with something that is, is very difficult and maybe even a kind of experience of inner deadness. Uh, uh, and, you know, you hear these uh, afflictions of cutting, you know, that, uh, that people often will go through either to uh, pull them out of emotional pain, so they create a physical pain for themselves, or I think out of a kind of darkness or depression, similarly, uh, a different kind of pain, but to pull, you know, to create something that uh, alters the mood. And, uh, and so this is inter interesting here that, you know, silence allows us to see things about ourselves and things about our lives and what is around us and should also help us to see uh, others and their pain, their suffering with a greater clarity too. But it's often, these are things that we often want to avoid. We want to avoid reality. Uh, I remember the, one of the first quotes that struck me from a, a monk when I visited the Trappist, a Trappist monastery, he said, that T.S. Eliot said, we can only bear or take so much reality before it becomes intolerable. And I imagine this experience or this experiment with silence is something along those lines. You know, we can only bear so much reality, you know, in terms of what is going on in the self, becoming so present to the self and what is going on in, internally might be the m most difficult thing for us to endure, either because nothing is going on in there. And so, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, a depressing kind of thing. There's no brain activity or, again, there's so much pain because of trauma that we experience. Interesting. Okay, let's see. Number 53. When we see one of our athletes in Christ in bodily suffering and infirmity, let us not maliciously seek to learn the ex explanation of his illness, but rather with simple and genuine love, let us try to heal him as though he were part of our own body and as a fellow warrior wounded in the fray. And so infirmity in others that, you know, there sometimes we can see another person's affliction and sometimes the affliction of our sin can even lead to bodily illness, that there can be, there is this close connection uh, and tie within us between the physical, the emotional and the spiritual. And, and so John is saying, when we see somebody 
uh, bearing one kind of affliction or an il illness or another, that what it should give rise to is not curiosity or judgment uh, of the other or trying to figure out, you know, what is going on with them, but rather give rise to empathy and love that we would seek to take it on as, as though they were part of our own body. So again, you know, we are called to let go of this idea of the individ an individual Christian. We make up, we are rather part of the body of Christ. And so the affliction, the suffering of others, whatever that it might be, whether it's physical illness or spiritual illness, we should uh, see it as our own and do anything that we can to bring healing or comfort. And, uh, you know, often we can simply look away, uh, pretend not to see or sit in judgment of the other uh, and not lift a finger to ease the burden of others. Similar to, you know, Christ's critique of the scribes and the Pharisees, we can even add to the burden of others. Uh, one also thinks of Job's friends you know, they, they come and, you know, one after another, they see his affliction and they're attributing it to all these uh, different reasons uh, that he must have done something, you know, against God or contrary to God's will. And, uh, and so oftentimes we, we have the worst bedside manner in the spiritual life as well as in, you know, the physical life. You know, that we often are inattentive to others in their need uh, or don't want it to touch our lives. And again, when we think of the scribes and the Pharisees, that was true as well. You know, that bodily affliction was often seen as tied to uh, somebody's sin. And so somebody like a leper was avoided not simply because of the disease, but because they would make one richly unclean, but also that they were responsible in some way for it as well. And uh, what we see Christ doing is entering into that suffering uh, from the moment that he enters into the waters of the Jordan uh, with John's baptism to uh, you know touching the de dead bodies or touching lepers and all the things that the religious of the time would not do. And, and so uh, the kind of humility and purity of heart should lead us, should almost give us an eye to that vulnerability, that infirmity and draw us to the other to offer our aid. Uh, Anthony writes, let's see, there's a couple here. Selene writes, uh, how does one take on affliction? Uh, are you speaking in regards to what I just read? Or in the sense of taking on the affliction of others? I think we help carry the, their burden. And uh, that again and again in the fathers, we see them taking on uh, the sins of others, the weight of it, the consequence of it, penance for it, again, acknowledging this radical solidarity 
you know, not wanting to bring another to shame, but covering their shame while also taking upon their burden as much as we can through this ascetical life in order that they, they might know healing. Uh, Antony writes, perhaps we attribute afflictions to sin as a way of justifying why we will never have afflictions. I'm not a sinner, etc. Perhaps I can see that, that uh, yeah, there can be a kind of pride in it and thinking that it'll, it will never touch us. We will never experience, you know, we live in a fallen world and so it's, you know, certainly our sin is its own punishment, you know, that it brings its own affliction. But uh, living in a fallen world, we certainly taste, uh, you know, this, uh, the effects of it every single day in our life. Um, and our humility has to you know, not only help us to take the burden of that on for others as Christ has done for us, but to willingly take it up as we experience it uh, with a, a spirit of humility. And if God allows us to carry it, then we seek to carry it with the same love that he did. Number 55. I'm sorry, number 54. Sickness is sometimes for the cleansing of sins and sometimes to humble our mind. And so sometimes we will be allowed to experience infirmity of one form or another uh, because it humbles the body. Uh, if, you know, we, we've talked about fasting, for example, or vigils, you know, all these ascetical practices that humble us in mind and body, that make us aware of our weakness, our need for God and his grace, but also deepen our prayer life. But illness can do the same thing when we experience that poverty and our weakness, our dependence upon God, where uh, we're confronted with the reality of our own mortality. It uh, can humble us in such a way that it helps uproot some of the sins that perhaps we cling to uh, uh, and or have such a deep attachment to. Uh, I think, you know, part of aging, we often will fight and, and, and hate because sometimes it, gets, it, it becomes very hard just to get out of bed in the, in the morning. And the older you get, the harder it becomes. And... Uh, days can be filled with pain, chronic pain. And uh, in and through this, you know, we lose our attachment to the things of this world and life in this world, not in the sense of necessarily hating it, but acknowledging that it does not offer us the fulfillment that we imagine or that we had this romantic notion of while young, where we see ourselves so often as being indestructible, you know, or that death seems so far from us. 
And uh, I think the reality of our aging and illness, you know, brings us face to face with that. And we see so many of the saints undergo these extraordinary conversions precisely because they experience near near death experiences. You know, Francis of Assisi was through illness. Ignatius of Loyola was the effects of war, having his legs shot out from underneath him and being, you know, uh, badly wounded and having to convalesce for a long period of time that it slows a person down to think about their life in a different way. And even affliction, uh, is it Solzhenitsyn, I think in his prison experience in the, the work, uh, Gulag Archipelago, you know, comes to a point where, you know, he writes, you know, thank you prison you know, for what you've given me, that in almost an unthinkable fashion, he expresses his gratitude for the place that had caused him so much misery because it opened his eyes to the greater reality of life. Louise writes, when I gave courses to professionals across the US, I told participants that there are two main taboos in psychotherapy love and suffering participating participants remain silent as though they knew that they do avoid experiencing love or suffering or providing psychotherapy <laughs> amazing and sad yes because you get to participate in it vicariously <laughs> uh, but from afar you aren't touched by it and others are speaking to you about their experiences but you're the observer and uh, uh, I've always, and it's one of the reasons I have respected the psychoanalysis is because they force a person to undergo the, in their training, you know, the analysis itself, you know, this deep look into the self and that pain to speak of the, the very things that others are going to speak to them about. And, uh, that's true in the spiritual life. You can't give what you don't have. And how do you express to others, you know, something of the darkness that one experiences in the spiritual life, that unless you've gone through it yourself and endured through it or the cross, uh, unless there is an experiential knowledge of it or dryness in prayer and perseverance through it or how one deals with insult you know, what humility is. We might be able to say a lot about it, but does it really uh, communicate anything in depth to another or anything real? Kate writes, there's a growing area of health and medicine that focuses on longevity and slowing the aging process. While this may seem good on the surface, I wonder if this is not good for the soul. You know, I've often wondered that myself, and I think you know, it perpetuates the an illusion and puts before somebody a false hope and almost perpetuates a kind of adolescence, pre prevents a maturing on an emotional and spiritual level. And uh, I've joked here on occasion about that commercial about the place down in Florida, the retirement place called The Villages, and there's something that I can't stand. When that commercial comes on, it gives me the willies 
because, you know, they show, you know, these old people on a softball field, you know, playing like they're teenagers and, uh, or, you know, tap dancing and doing all this kind of stuff. And not that I feel that, you know, older people shouldn't enjoy those things, but it's sort of presenting this image. If you come here, it is going to, you know, provide, you know, this kind of experience of longevity that it, you'll experience this kind of second adolescence, which we do anyways, in the course of our life. Uh, but uh, it's like perpetuating this experience precisely to, to push off the real dealing with the reality. You know, a person sitting in a rocking chair, you know, is they'll often say, well, I just don't want to be that person waiting for death. Well, you know, it's not simply about waiting for death. It's reflecting upon one's life and, and faith and where real hope comes from and reflecting upon one's life as a whole, how one has lived one's life. And if we put that off, you know, Perhaps we hear those same words from the gospel. You fool, for this very night your life will be required of you. Never having had the opportunity to reflect with any kind of depth. Yeah, there's almost this kind of obsession in our day of putting off that aging. And people younger and younger getting like plastic surgery and things such as that, uh, in order to alter their their looks, you know, again, not embracing reality. So that brings us to 8.30. So that went by pretty quickly again this evening. So again, discernment, there's a lot to think about here. You know, how is it that we are viewing and understanding the vices and the virtues and perceiving, you know, the, the, the struggle with the vices and how they're remedied? And discernment is what allows us to do this. So thank you all. And uh, again, wonderful questions and comments. And we'll, we'll pick up there next week. So when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.